When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. The world of cricket was thrown into turmoil in the summer of 1977 when Australian media tycoon Kerry Packer signed up many of the world's best players to play World Series cricket in direct competition to established international cricket. In today's episode of What Was It Like To?, I was joined by Rick McCosker, the former Australian test player of the 1970s and 1980s, who explained the reasons why he signed up and what it was like to play World Series cricket. What was it like to play World Series cricket? A good question, Stephen. Lots of memories. Initially, uh, very exciting. Um, It was tough. Um, we were playing with and against the best cricketers in the world every game. So it was tough. A um, lot of hard travelling. Disappointing uh, after a while in the response from the media and from the administration. But then I guess in hindsight we should have um, ex- should have expected uh, what, what we what eventually occurred. So that was, um, yeah, that was difficult times um, in some ways. Um, as I mentioned, exciting in others, but difficult because of the way we were treated in the media and uh, by administration. So um, we had to overcome that. But putting that aside, uh, it was very exciting and uh, and it was wonderful to be part of something as big as this and something new and something that <clears throat> we felt was important. And uh, I knew myself personally that uh, when it came to a decision, if I, irrespective of what I said, it was going to happen anyway. And um, I wanted to be part of this uh, because uh, it was going to be wor- something worldwide. Um, something at at world level, even though I was initially in Australia, but we were playing against um, world-class players all the time. So I wanted to be part of it. Well, thanks for that introduction. I'd like to now look back at your journey in World Series cricket. Mm. When were you first approached? The centenary test finished on the 17th of March, 1977. You, You were, at the time, suffering from your broken jaw but when when were you first approached about the world series cricket the first day of the century test was the 13th i'm pretty sure it was the 13th um probably two or three days before that um i was approached in melbourne we were down there as part of the um uh, the promotion of the centenary test and uh, we're in melbourne and i had a call from 
two guys uh, who I'd never met, um, John Cornell and Austin Robertson, and uh, they asked me, you know, could they have a meeting with me? And uh, we met clandestinely in a, uh, in, in a hotel in Melbourne. Um, and um, so it just, to me, yeah, just completely out of left field. Even though, in hindsight, I, I realised that I certainly wasn't the first approached, and there were other, others, obviously, who more senior players who had been approached, and before they got to me, uh, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. And uh, so that was the that was the initial contact um, about uh, yeah three days before the start of the centenary test. So you don't know whether uh, many of the other players before that test had, had been approached, but it sounds like they had been. Well, they would have been, for sure. I knew I wouldn't have been the first one. But it was part of the, the whole process was amazingly kept secret. And even um, probably a month later, um, when by the time we were in England for the 77 tour, I certainly didn't know who else had been approached. And I had my suspicions, obviously. Um, there was the Chapels and the and Walters and Marsh and Lily and those guys, so I knew they would have been approached, but no one said anything. It had never been discussed amongst, um, uh, certainly amongst at a team level, and uh, I, I certainly was not aware. But, uh, again, you know, I knew that um, if this was going ahead, there would have been others um, approached. Um, so, yeah, I, um, as I said, I was approached two days, two or three days before the centenary test, but I told them, told John Austin, uh, I was not going to even think about it before the centenary test because um, this was the most important match and uh, I didn't even want to consider it. And so uh, I didn't and uh, I completely um, put it out of my mind until after the, uh, after the centenary test, after the match. Um, and then... Uh, Straight after the match, we, we flew back to Sydney, or I had, I had to fly back to Sydney. I had to uh, go back into hospital and um, have a jaw operation. And uh, so, um, but through uh, communications, we, you know, we were uh, had, I was contacted again and asked to make a decision, asked not to um, discuss this with anybody except my wife. And not to get legal advice, uh, not to speak to my teammates, my friends, anybody. So it was a decision that we had to make by ourselves. And um, so it was, it was tough times, but uh, and and so a little bit unnerving, and because we're uncertain as to where all this was going to to lead and what the consequences would be. But being a little naive, I guess. Thinking and not thinking and through exactly how dire the con- these consequences were going to be. So, um, yes, yeah, so in some ways we weren't really prepared for what eventuated. But, um, yeah, so we just had to accept what did eventuate. And so, but decision was made um, for a couple of reasons. The main one was that. I, wanted, I knew that if I was approached, then the best of the Australian team would also be approached. And so I wanted to continue playing with the best players in our country and playing against the best players in the world. 
So that was the initial. The second thing was this was something uh, perhaps a bit radical, but something that we thought was necessary because of the um, uh, the attitude of the authorities in Australia, cricket authorities, towards us as players. Um, we didn't see, we couldn't see any future from a, a financial point of view for us players. And at that point in time, I was uh, 30, 30 years of age, I had um, family, um, house in Sydney with a mortgage, and so had a part, had a job in a bank. And so these are, but um, because of the time constraints that we were asked to play test cricket, and uh, I was finding it more and more difficult to uh, continue my work in the bank, and they were finding it more difficult to continue to employ me. So when the news about World Series broke out, then um, that was the end of the road as far as my employment with the bank. So, in fact, it had, prior to leaving in 90, for the 1977 tour of England, I had to take leave without pay, and so that was going to be very difficult from a financial point of view because we, you know, we were just weren't you know, paid very much at all. Um, as a single person, I could have existed, but um, married with two children and a house uh, with a mortgage uh, was becoming more and more difficult. So that was uh, another matter that determined our decision. Yeah, I was reading that... Um for a test player, you were getting $400 a match um, at that time. That's correct, yeah. Uh, plus, we would get a daily allowance, which allowed us to go to Macca's and have a Big Mac um, and maybe a, a coffee if we're lucky. Um, so, yeah, so that was it. And so that was yeah, obviously part of the reason why. And we couldn't see that this was going to change. There was nothing that we could see from the attitude of the authorities that um, this was going to change in any way. So we felt that we had to do something and um, so that was why the initial discussions first started um, through Dennis Lilly to uh, Austin Robertson, who was his um, agent, and uh, to John Cornell who was obviously right-hand man for Kerry Packer. Well, you brought the the, the, the main man in there, the uh, media tycoon, Kerry uh, Packer, yeah. who actually was only 39 at the time. When did you first meet Kerry Packer? And you must have really trusted him when when the, the concept came up because they had no grounds to play on when you first no, announced great. it. No, uh, we, we first met uh, Kerry, well, my, I personally met Kerry, um, the Dorchester Hotel in London in, during our, our tour of 77 when we were over there. Um, that was my initial meeting. Obviously, there was uh, Ian and Greg Chappell and Dennis Delia that had, had lots of time with him um, in the the planning exercise. Um, but, yeah, look, we did, I mean, we did our research. We, we had a pretty fair idea how, how big um, Kerry Packer and the Nine Network were. And we understood his reasons for, for wanting, you know, to getting involved. Obviously, it was a business decision for him initially. Um, he wanted uh, the rights to um, to cricket. He wanted the, the opportunity to be able to negotiate with 
Australian Cricket Board for the rights to uh, to test cricket, and he felt that um, he had a right to be part of um, those negotiations. But uh, he was uh, coming up against a you know, brick wall, uh, just as we were coming up against a brick wall. So um, yeah, so I guess to a certain extent, we we had faith in him. We had faith in the Nine Network. Um, we had faith in in John Cornell. And um, so that that was formed part part of our obviously our collective decisions, which you know we hadn't didn't have an opportunity to discuss until later when when we all knew who else was had been contracted and and who was involved. And so that wasn't until we were into the um, the seventy seven tour in England. For me personally, and I don't I don't know what involvement he had with the other guy's employment but I from my from my perspective um, I was given well, basically shown the door by by the bank that I had worked for 15 years uh, and that was that but um, that was okay from my from my point of view because I knew my future as a as a banker was uh, wasn't something that I was really excited about. Uh, the way that the banking industry in Australia was going, and um, so I was part of many bank employees who left around about that time and a bit later. So that wasn't a real issue for me because just after the World Series and the board got to got back together again, I was offered employment and a move to Newcastle, um, which was very timely from our point of view because we wanted to, to move out of Sydney and had a young family. We wanted to uh, to move out there, so I had an opportunity of being employed in Newcastle and still be able to play shield cricket and test cricket um, for as long as I could. So that that part didn't didn't worry me, but um, the in personal involvement with Kerry for, for different things, he was very interested. As we went along, we found out that he's very interested in in, in lots of things. Um, during, I can't remember, it was the first season or the second season, a couple of our guys, I know uh, Doug Wallers and uh, Ross Edwards, uh, were having fairly lean trots. And so he arranged and paid for extra practice sessions for them. And he got personally involved and wanted them to um, um to have every opportunity they could to practice because they knew, he knew that we weren't allowed to, you know, we're ostracised by our uh, state associations, the board and our clubs, that we couldn't uh, attend our own club practices, our state practices. So we're basically on our own. So he was aware of that and he gave us as many opportunities as possible. So... Um, as far as Kerry, our relationship with Kerry, he was a very tough man. He obviously uh, was a big decision for him and a big risk for him. He was putting up all the money. Um, so we understood that. Uh, he asked a lot from us, but he backed us. He had our back. And uh, and we felt uh, comfortable with that and felt confident that, um, that he had our back. So... Uh, from that point of view, um, we we felt um, yeah that 
that we were okay, even though there were uh, we we were not treated very well by the media and by authorities. We knew that at least we had one guy um, uh, in our on our side, and uh, became even more comfortable for us when um, Richie and Daff Benno joined World Series and become involved. And for our, for us, that was a big thing, big uh, important uh, measure. And Kerry obviously knew that. And I'm, I, I'm guessing he he paid Richie and Daff a lot of money, but it, from his point of view, it was worth it. And um, they really got involved and, and they became the, um, uh, the, I guess, the contact and the uh, between us as players and uh, and Kerry and his his business hierarchy, and so that was that was important. And obviously, with Richie's media involvement and um, and Daff's organising ability, uh, it made a whole heap of difference, especially in that first year when when they were trying to get it established. It must have given. World Series cricket, a lot of credibility, uh, having Richie yeah. involved. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think this might have uh, surprised the um, cricket authorities to a certain extent. And uh, yeah, so I don't know whether it did or not, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it would have because I don't think they they expected something like that to happen. Well, the story broke on the 9th of May, nineteen seventy seven, in the UK. Um, Mm. Kerry Prackwood signed 35 of the world's best cricketers. 13 of the 17 in the Australian tour party were included. He'd set up a, a, an international cricket series to play test cricket and one-day cricket. I think it was for three summers, I think, when it was first set up. Was initially, that right? initially uh, that was the case, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so we were kind of, I was, my personally, I've got no idea of the contract details of any of the other players. And I didn't ask, and no one asked me. But um, I was only contracted. I was actually contracted for two years, but paid paid for one. And um, so that that was that, that was all that I was aware of. Did that development affect the performance of the Australian team? And were there some divisions in the side because some people weren't in the Packer series during that tour? To be honest, I think yes, there probably was. Um, we probably didn't realise to the full extent at that time. Our team in '77 was nowhere near the same team as two years previously in '75. Um, it was a lot less um, experienced, and there was there were two or three members of the team who hadn't been contracted to World Series cricket. And whilst we we tried very hard to allow that to have have an effect, I think it was very difficult not to have have some effect. And I think in the end it did. Um, our, apart from Greg Chapel, um, our performances were, were pretty ordinary, particularly myself. 1977-78, the first World Series summer. Uh, what was the build-up like? to the first game at VFL Park, Melbourne, on the mm. 2nd of December, 1977? Mm. That was a difficult <laughs> difficult time. Um, it was virtually Channel 9 work versus the rest of the world to a certain extent. 
Um, so it was a difficult time. Um, the, the network and Richie and all those people involved did, did the absolute best they could, uh, but it was, it was a difficult time. And uh, it was a bit disappointing initially. The acceptance by the Melbourne people um, was very limited and certainly had a lot to do with the adverse media from all the other networks, particularly the ABC. So it was a difficult time for us, but we had we we had to go ahead. It was all set to go, but unfortunately, we didn't have any grounds initially. Big grounds to play on. Um, we didn't have the MCG. We didn't have Sydney Creek Ground. None of those. So the initial first game was at the football park at, at Waverley, which is way out in the suburbs of Melbourne. So from that point of view, it would have been difficult for people to get there anyway. Um, but there were a few people there, and um, it was exciting for us. Um, but it was a bit difficult after we'd played um, you know, a couple of months earlier at the MCG in front of 60,000, 70,000 people. This was a bit different. And, but um, we were all in coloured clothing. The lights weren't brilliant. They were okay. They were brilliant. And so um, that, that was how we started. And um, I remember vividly the, um, the first over of World Series cricket because I was facing up to Andy Roberts. And, um, and even though we'd sort of had a couple of trial hits beforehand, um, this was the real thing. And these guys were keen to, uh, to, be, you know, to be shown as the best in the world. And, and, and uh, so... I didn't even last the first over, and I think if I recall correctly, I might have been dismissed for no score whatsoever. And so that was my introduction to World Series cricket. Rick did in fact face the first ball in World Series cricket when Andy Roberts bowled to him at VFL Park, Melbourne. As Rick recalled, he was out in the first over, second ball to be precise, for no score, caught by Viv Richards at third slip. But from then on, look, things, yeah, improved gradually. It took it took a while, and uh, but it, it did take on. It took a lot of perseverance from, um, ex, I'm guessing, money and negotiations by Kerry and the Nine Network and, and negotiations with with the um, Australian Cricket Board and court cases and all sorts of things happening behind the scenes. But in the meantime, we were playing cricket which was good from our point of view, uh, but it was tough. Um, as I said, we uh, were playing against the best in the world. We were either playing a West Indies team, which was an absolutely magnificent team at that point in time, or we're playing against a rest of the world team, which in addition to the West Indian players had you know, the best of the world. And there were four or five South Africans who were uh, very hungry to get involved in all of this. And, um, and to be playing this level of cricket they hadn't been able to play before for some time. So it was all tough. Um, we had um, there were two parts to it. There was the, the super tests, which the number one Australian team was involved in, and then there was what they call the Cavaliers, which was the second tier. And uh, I played in both. We had a lot of travelling to do. We played on some substandard grounds. 
um, sometimes in front of small crowds, um, sometimes crowds that weren't 100% with us, but it was it was an opportunity for them to to see player world world class players in di- in different places in country areas. So from that point of view, that worked, um, and it was good for the local people. But it was still difficult and was hard to play cricket against the best in the world under conditions that weren't exactly brilliant in a lot of cases. But uh, but yeah, it was it was all exciting, and this was part of what we what we knew we had to do, and um, this was all part of it. We knew that um, things would get better. Rick goes on to talk about the key match in World Series cricket, the day-night match between Australia and the West Indies at the Sydney Cricket Ground on the 28th of November, 1978. A match watched by over 50,000 people. And the turning point was the the day-night match on the Sydney Cricket Ground when um, the gates were opened and and that first, that one-day game under lights at the SCG when the ground was absolutely full and it was an amazing sight. Unfortunately, I wasn't playing that game, but I witnessed it and it was just absolutely amazing atmosphere. And from then on, it just blossoms and, um, yeah, it, uh, it just got better and better and bigger and bigger. And I think the public realised through, um, yeah, through a lot of advertising and media slogans, um, come on, Aussie, come on, and all that sort of stuff. That was that become um, sort of household jingles, and so that was all all part. And so a lot of a lot of it was um, as a result of work that uh, was done behind the scenes, particularly from guys like Tom Cornell, and that was that was really his role, and he was very good at it. And so. Uh, it started to really blossom and um, to a certain extent we could see the end of the road as far as World Series versus the establishment was concerned. Just to give a bit of context, in that uh, first summer of World Series cricket, you scored, um, you, you played in five of the six super tests. You scored a, a century in the last match um, against a bowl and attack of uh, of Roberts, Imran, Khan, Joel Garner, Wayne Daniel, and Tony Gregg, and and the World Eleven in that in that match. So just as you said earlier, um, Gordon Greenwich, Barry Richards, Viv Richards, Zahir Abbas, as Asif Iqbal, Tony Gregg, Imran Khan, and Alan Knott. It just mm. tells you the standard of of opposition mm. that you were playing against. Yeah, not a bad team. Yeah. So I remember batting a long time with uh, Greg Chapel, and um, we we had a double century partnership, um, and so that was that was good. But it was tough, um, and because of the opposition and uh, and some of the wickets that this was the time when um, period when the first years the drop in wickets, and they were fairly untried, and uh, so it was a bit of an experiment, but. Um, they weren't always totally true, and when you're playing against opposition like that, it was a, a bit difficult at times for to be an opening batsman when you're facing against the fast bowling of the the, uh, 
um, of the West Indies and um, you know, Imran Khan and, uh, and and those guys. It was yeah, it was was hard work, but um, uh, and no yeah, helmets okay. as well, and no helmets and, as well. Well, yeah, it was it was difficult, and uh, especially after um, you know, the centenary test, um, still coming to tell me to uh, to grips with that. So it was yeah. It was it was hard going, but it was exciting, and uh, eventually, um, yeah, it, it all came together. And uh, yeah, tru- truce was broken on the thirtieth of May. This is between the Australian Cricket Board and Channel Nine. Thirtieth May, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. You'd just come back from a World Series tour of the Caribbean, and you yeah. actually played in the very last Super Test, where you scored thirty five and twenty. That's right. Yeah, and. Uh, the- that was an exciting, exciting tour. I hadn't been to the West Indies before. I was really looking forward to that. Um, exciting, tiring, dangerous. Um, but as it turned out, um, we played out. We arrived at Jamaica, and um, the first first day we arrived, we were told, "Don't go out of the hotel by yourself." And we were told by the authorities that there'd been. So many, there were so many murders every night in Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, we weren't to go out by ourselves. So we didn't. Um, the first game was a one day game in, in Kingston, Jamaica, and um, I was uh, hit on, on my right forefinger by Michael Holding and broke the finger. That was a good start to the tour. So I had to go to the hospital and have it put, uh, have it, um, put in plaster. And so that was the end of my cricket for a few weeks. And uh, as it turned out, uh, you know, I, I really missed the cricket and I missed playing in the super tests. But it meant that I had been able to spend time uh, going ahead of the team. Uh, we, were, uh, we were doing some coaching clinics and I was working with um, some absolutely f- fantastic guys, um, Lance Gibbs, um, Joel Garner, Wes Hall, and Cigarfield Sobers in different places. And it was an absolutely amazing time. And I really enjoyed the association with those guys. And uh, that was that was good, but did not, didn't spend much time with the team at all uh, until we got to Guyana for the second last test. And um, that was the, 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 the time when we'd had about, two or three days of torrential rain leading up to the first day of the test match. And uh, there was no way possible that we could, this, the match would start on time. And, in fact, for the first two days, there was not a ball bowled and there was no chance. On the third day, unfortunately, very early in the morning, one of the local authorities made an announcement over local radio that the gates were open and the game would start on time. And not one of us players or the umpires uh, had, had any any chance, could see any chance that this game was going to get get started any time during the day. But the upshot of that was that we arrived at the ground about 9.30, 10 o'clock, sun was shining, the ground was full. And we, didn't, we knew that, that there was going to be some trouble here because no one in the world the game could start. Um, the, the crowd had been there since about 8 o'clock that morning with their... Um, bottles of rum and by about 10 o'clock 10 30 most of those uh, bottles had been consumed 
And so it went on and on and on. And um, Douglas Sanghew and his uh, brother umpire kept going out and making inspections, but they knew there was just no chance. In the end, the crowd got sick of, got lost patience and stormed the ground. And um, well, first of all, they threw all their bottles on the ground. Then they threw park benches and all that stuff onto the ground. Not satisfied with that, they then uh, got onto the ground, grabbed all their bottles and started throwing the bottles at the um, players' pavilion where we were. And uh, a lot of the, the bottles were coming through the glass windows of our dressing room so there were, and there was glass flying around everywhere. So it got worse and worse and there was huge noise and we thought, you know, we were in big trouble here. Um, we had a security guard uh, in our room but at that point in time, we looked around the security guard was lying underneath the table. Uh, he didn't want to know what was going on, so it was up to us. Um, some of us at that point in time had helmets, and so we, whoever had helmets had them on, and we had pads on and gloves and yes. bats in hand, and we were ready to defend ourselves because at that point in time, the crowd was just outside our door, and, um, and it became a mob. And we thought we were in real trouble. But just when we thought that uh, we were in big trouble, we heard gunfire and um, we realised, we were told later, that the riot squad had just arrived and they arrived just in time. So we were told that they were firing rubber bullets, but we were never quite sure whether they were rubber bullets or real ones. About half an hour later, um, when the crowd had been dispersed by the riot squad, um, a bus had turned up right next to the dressing room and we were uh, raced onto the bus and taken back to the uh, to the Howard team hotel. We looked at the ground and, and there was just such a mess that we looked as if there had been a tornado um, that hit the ground. There was such a mess. We had a meeting back at the hotel and some of us uh, wanted to leave immediately and go home. We'd had enough. But wiser heads uh, prevailed, particularly our captain, Ian Chapel, um, and Greg. I mean, they'd been to West Indies before, and they knew that this wasn't really against uh, us personally. It was because they were starved of test cricket and they really wanted us, yeah, really wanted to watch us play. So we stayed. Next day, we went to the ground. Sun was shining. The game started on time and was as if nothing happened. Uh, it happened previously. Crowd thoroughly enjoyed the game. Um, I wasn't playing in that game. I was still recovering from a broken finger. Um, but uh, it was an unbelievable atmosphere um, at, in Guyana. So, yeah, that was that. And then we got played the last test in Antigua and I played that game. And as you said, I got a 30 and a 20, something like that. In part two of what was it like to play World Series cricket, coming soon, Rick McCosker reflects on the project and considers its impact on the world of cricket. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pav. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network.